0: All right. Uh, my name is Ernst. I am the moderator for this session, for this uh part two of this uh today's forum. Uh, my job is, of course, to you know, to keep time and to uh, help you stay on track and to uh, stay civil, should I say, and to stay engaged. Uh, We've just heard a pretty detailed and comprehensive report on the platform workers, and I think this report has given us another, uh, give us a sense of what the platform workers are thinking and also about their job situation and the job context. Uh, Our panel discussion will focus on how best we could, uh, as a country and as a society, improve their job situation and what recommendation we could propose to the government and employers. Uh, we've got three speakers and one uh, that is uh, Matthew Matthews and I reckon they'll be responding to all to the questions to the, uh, relating to the report and also suggest some viable uh, recommendation. So now let me uh, introduce the speakers one at a time. Uh, no, I think I'll do it one, one at one go and uh, I also want to say that each will have uh, 10 minutes uh, for, for their their, their response. Uh, after which we'll take questions and have a robust discussion for about 45 minutes. So let me first uh, introduce uh, the first speaker and of course I'll introduce all of them at one go, right, so we don't have to uh, interrupt the process. Uh, Professor Danny Koa, as you know, uh, needs no introduction. Uh, he's Dean and the uh, ka Professor of Economics. Uh, among other accolades, uh, I think what is quite relevant here, pretty relevant rather, is that he's Vice Chair of the Advisory Committee on platform workers. Uh, I understand that from their first meeting of the committee, uh, they have discussed three key points. I will not go to them. I'll leave it to him to offer his insights and recommendation. Uh, after which, uh, after uh, Professor uh, Danny, we have Mr. Lian, uh, Lian Chun-Lun, uh, who's GM of Project Singapore. Uh, and uh, I think we just we know from the CV that he's actually climbed Mount Everest. I think that's quite something. Uh, for me, I think the highest mountain I've climbed is uh, Mount Faber, right? So, not, nothing much to talk about. Uh, but, okay. So, he's got a big job in Kuchai, and I'm sure he can offer his insights uh, from the practitioner point of view. And uh third, speakers, third speaker will be Associate Professor Irene Ng. He's a colleague of mine. He, uh, she works at the uh, Department of Social Work, and also he's on the, she's on the Social Service uh, Research Center Steering Committee. Uh, she has done research work on low-income families and also the, uh, uh, those who are working, uh, the working poor rather. Uh, and uh, Dr. Matthew Matthews will be answering questions on the survey uh, that he, has just, he and his team has just presented. So without further ado, let me uh, invite uh, Professor Danny Kua to uh, give his take and uh, response to the, uh, the report. Uh, Professor Kua, please.
1: Thank you, Professor Tan. And thank you to the IPS team for delivering such a, an informative, uh, well-argued document and presentation. In the time that I have, I'm going to give some reactions to what I've heard and read, raise some questions. But to begin, I'm just going to describe to you something that happened over this last weekend and it relates to some of the issues that have arisen in the presentation one of the questions that came up in the presentation is is our city landscape well suited for delivery riders now i live on a hill that's actually quite difficult to access and over the weekend when i looked out my window I noticed a food panda delivery rider on the bicycle in great frustration, riding round and round the compound, unable to find the entry, unable to come up the hill. So he finally gave up. He put his bicycle to one side and he walked up the hill with his heavy carrier uh, bag. And he had to wait for some others to walk around to open the pedestrian gate, which was too small to let in his bicycle, much less let in a a car or a motorcycle. This is a challenge on the question, is our environment well suited for delivery riders? They do face obstacles. But let me say this, the problem is he's not the only one to face this problem. Many casual visitors, guests that keep to within the, the group of five also unable to come in. And here's the problem. The problem is the compound has been constructed in a way to encourage pedestrian egress. It is environmentally green. Coming into the accommodation units is a challenge not only for delivery riders. It is a challenge for everyone. The point I'm making with this observation is that we cannot use just this in isolation to reflect on the predicament of delivery riders. From a policy perspective, we might be asking, how do we fix this? Whatever we do, we want to focus on the unfortunate situations that platform workers find themselves, but we also need to be fair to everyone, balance against other social priorities, provide a level playing field so that everyone in our community, our society, can achieve the best of their abilities. We cannot treat this problem of delivery riders having to put their bicycles to one side to walk up the hill in isolation. So with that as a background, let me tell you about some of the reactions on the advantages and disadvantages, some of my reactions, uh, both as an academic and as someone who tries to think about policy on platform workers to some, what, what we've seen here and in doing this, I hope that I can invite eventually Matthew and the rest of the team to come in to address some of these questions. So I found this report wonderful in the way it set out a balanced view, their advantages and disadvantages. The story that I've just told about my weekend experience says that we also need to be constantly on the lookout for a reality check, where we cannot look at just platform workers in isolation alone. We need to look at some broader context. So, efficiency and opportunity is a big class of advantage, advantages to the new version of platform work that we're seeing develop around us today. And for me, what the report zeroed in on here was this. This is what the report says. It is a quick and convenient way to find work, these platforms, especially for those with difficulties, otherwise meeting their basic needs. There's a flexibility here, but there's also insecurity. There are low barriers to entry. This is a wonderful thing for the platform workers. But just as I said in my introduction vignette, let's look around more broadly at the compound, at the landscape. Is this the maximally preferred work that platform workers want to do? What do they need to compare this with? Do they compare this with the best job they could imagine getting? Or do they compare this with having no work at all? That baseline matters hugely for how we think the advan- this advantage here is. How does this barrier to entry feature, which provides flexibility, but also insecurity, compare to other similar income jobs, gardening and landscaping, security guards, hotel and restaurant service work? Do they provide a similar landscape for flexibility and insecurity? Some of this work is unquestionably mind-deadening. It's repetitive. It involves long hours and great discipline. But so does assembly line work. And assembly line work transformed the urban workforce over all of the 20th century. Assembly line work was also potentially dangerous on heavy machinery assembly lines. As we think about the dangers and the risks of this new platform of platform work. We need to constantly compare this with other parts of the employment landscape. You work more, they pay you more. This reflects autonomy and agency and some capacity for choice of these workers. It's especially the case for those who are trying to smooth over their income stream in between jobs. At the end of it, where I come down on is slide 16. In the report, Matthew, which says 57% of those that you surveyed say they can tolerate the pressures of being this driver. It's not 100%. It's not 0%. It is somewhere in between. It is actually higher than than a simple 50% majority. 40% say they are satisfied overall. And we need to benchmark this against a touchstone of other similar jobs. Let me end this this, this uh, part of my discussion with a comment about the pressures of real-time algorithmic control and management. And this is, of course, stressful. I am stressed because in my office, there are security cameras that constantly look at me on whether I am typing in my staff reports. Some of my staff co- complain That they only get assessed once a year in their annual review. They would like more frequent assessments of how well they are doing. Having only annual reviews is not necessarily ideal. What we see for platform workers is they're not getting annual reviews, they're getting minute by minute reviews. They're getting constant assessment of how they're doing. Yes, this can be stressful, but so is the other extreme where people don't know how they're doing until the end of the year I and mean, by then it's too late for them to get their reports in faster change the way they're publishing it is a machine that controls this that is absolutely true but human bosses need not be better human bosses can be capricious and prejudiced and well well human and being human is often not the best way to try and assess other humans let me end. I have found, I found that this, this report is, is wonderful in its nuance, in its balance, in how it thinks about the set of issues going forwards. I would encourage, if I may, perhaps uh, as we go on in this thinking, in this research, a constant reassessment of the more general landscape. We cannot zero in on the food panda delivery rider putting his bicycle one side, walking up the hill, because if we don't understand the more general environment, we don't understand what, why it's happening there. We don't understand this is a general issue. So let me let me end by going back to a threefold set of issues that the, the, the Platform Workers Advisory Committee, on which I'm lucky enough to get to serve, that we're concerned with. And we're concerned with the points that this IPS report has raised. And we're constantly trying to get a touchstone against the more general Ministry of Manpower set of concerns. So there are three that I constantly come back to. One is income and retirement adequacy. How do platform workers do relative to others similarly placed? When they have low savings, is it a problem specific to platform workers or do other low-income workers face the same set of issues? Can we provide a level playing field? A second concern is workplace injury. And workplace injury here and the associated insurance is very complicated because of the fine grain of control. Insurance works because it distributes risk. There's risk sharing. But when you have too much information and too much control, you are unable to insure properly. Because everybody tries to think about just themselves, there's no risk sharing. So we need to bring risk sharing back into thinking about workplace injury. And then my final set of concerns that we constantly come back to is what sometimes is referred to as collective bargaining. I I don't think that that's necessarily the best term here. But some joint representation, some streamlined communications for those like my good friend Lian at GoJack, who's working on the platform side, some way for him to communicate in an easy way with everybody who's a platform worker working on his behalf. It's not necessarily just collective bargaining. That was one of the things collective bargaining served, but we need some kind of streamlined communications or joint representation. So those are my three points. I've raised some questions along the way. It's up to IPS and Matthew whether they want to respond to that, but this is such a wonderful, wonderful study. I congratulate Matthew and his team and I look forward to very many more of these. Back to you, moderator, Prof Tan. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, thank you very much, uh, Professor Kwa. Uh, I really like what you said. I think I concur with you on uh, the, the aspects about uh, how we need to think comparative. You know, sometimes when we only focus on uh, one occupation, uh, we tend to sort of forget that there may be others who are in the same situation. Uh, But having said that, I think that since this is our focus on platform workers, I think uh, this is something we need to deal with. Uh, We hope that uh, instead of uh, uh, having non-standard kind of uh, benefits uh, or condition, uh, we hope that something could be done for them. Okay, but of course, we also hope that it can be done for uh, a range of other occupations as well. All right, so without further ado, let me also uh, pass the baton to uh, uh, Mr. Lien, who... uh, Talk from this perspective as a uh, head of project in Singapore, Mister Lim, please.
2: Thanks, Prof Tan. Uh, thanks, Prof Danny. Thanks, everyone for having me here. Thanks, IPS for having me here. And actually, I'm also very grateful to the more than 350 guests and participants. The questions you've been asking are really, really close to my heart because it's something that we think about. So, I'd be looking forward to discuss that. Um, you know, later in this session, I think. Uh, in, in the time that I have, what I'd like to do is really just uh, offer some thoughts and framing around uh, the, the, the the report, which is actually very, very comprehensive. First, a comment, I think if you think about the key existential issues we are facing globally today, there are two. One, everyone talks about sustainability. Second, is it is about social equitability and inclusion and in economic growth. and Economic growth and those opportunities are things that our top minds have you know, uh, occupied themselves with for large parts of uh, as long as economics has been around. In the past 30 years, there's observations, uh, say in the US, where uh, post-World War II, a high school graduate could live very well, um, but that has been stagnant over the past 20 or 30 years. Books like Hillbilly Elegy talk about that. If you look at the protests in France, partially is about um, economic opportunities. And then increasingly, whether it is the future of work and automation, there are concerns and pressures on what uh, earning opportunities will look like uh, going forward. So this is definitely a really important um, uh, study concerning work work poverty and how platform work uh, interacts with, with these different issues. So I, I think you know that's that that is uh, by way of introduction. But uh, first, a caveat, right? Gojek um, in Singapore is primarily four wheels, so we just do drivers. We don't do two wheels in Singapore. But I'm quite familiar with two wheel drivers and food delivery riders from the work I do in Vietnam and Indonesia, where I also help look after driver operations there. So I think we you know want to compare Singapore to a Singaporean environment. Globally, I think a few trends. The first, the industry has matured. Uh, In the early days, there were a lot of incentives. There were very large incentives. Those were from Uber in the US and then in a local environment. Second, Uber's um, initial launch uh, attitudes and methodologies and the way they engage with drivers as well as regulators, these are very well documented. I think that that is not the approach that most of the players take nowadays. Uh, And we don't take that approach because fundamentally, if we want to be around for the long term, if we want to be economically sustainable for the long term, then it also translates to ensuring that the drivers are viable and sustainable as well. So, it, I mean, even if you don't believe in any altruism, the fact that we have self-interest, longer-term self-interest means that we need to take care of the drivers, driver partners who are the ones that offer the service on our platform. So that's, that's I think, one, one really important thing to just to realise that it is not adversarial because when we use the word partner, I mean, it is, they are the ones that provide the, fundamentally provide the unit of service that, that happens, whether it's food delivery or whether it is a right. Um, then maybe I'll just uh, respond to each of the different uh, parts of the uh, discussion earlier. The most important one is uh, what Dr. Dr. Matthews started with. Prof, ProfCore, I think, has articulated better than I do. Right. Which is what are the, what are you comparing against? What are the comparative employment and earning options out there for someone with a similar level of human capital and similar level of skills? What is the, um, what would the hourly rate of earnings be like? Uh, I think Winley and both Prof Kua have said precarious employment is not a defining feature of platform work. It's a defining feature of low income work, it's a defining feature of um, slightly lower skilled workers. So I'd say the uh, you know, taxis have been around for a very long time. And so if you compare um, ride hailing to taxis, uh, are there fundamental differences in features? Are there fundamental differences in earnings between these? So I think th- this is uh, pretty important. Uh, Singapore's unemployment is now at about 2.5%, based on what I last read. If you speak to anyone at, at, at the Singapore Business Federation Retailers Frontline, there are a lot of uh, there is a lot of demand for for workers and um, employers are all complaining about the lack of uh, employees. So I think in this broad sweep or this landscape of uh, employment opportunities, Singapore Singaporean workers have a choice of where they go to, and they can vote with their feet. So I think that's the first point, which is around what are we comparing against. The second. You know, point, which is what Wendy was talking about, flexibility, and that the flexibility may not appear to be real. I would caveat by saying that um, the flexibility comes because you have a choice in modality. Again, I'm saying if you compare between a taxi worker, if you take a two by two matrix, you have people that drive all day, and they drive for many years. There are people that drive all day, but they do it as an interim stopgap between looking for jobs. I remember I met a guy this was before COVID. He's an uh, oil and gas worker. He says, okay, I've been laid off oil and gas. I'm going to do this for three to six months. When oil and gas picks up cyclically, I'll do this again. You've got people that drive part day for a long time. These are often people who are self-employed in other ways. These are uh, insurance agents. These are property agents, sales reps of some kind. And you've got those that drive part day for a few months or maybe one or two years with a very, flexi- a very limited duration. These would be students, primarily students, who say, look, this is great, it allows me to go to my class, earn some side money, and then after that, I can um, I'll end this when I find full-time work. So the flexibility here is the modality that you choose when you come in. Of course, there is the flexibility within the day, but if you've chosen to be a full-day long-term driver, obviously that amount of flexibility by definition would be slightly less. So I think the definition of flexibility really matters. But even within that, you can choose to take a day off uh, um, if if you want to, which is probably a little bit more flexible than if you're in a full-time employment. You've got some days of leave, but here, you don't even need to have to find covers. So I'd say the definition of flexibility is important. Um, Third, I think uh, when Fiona spoke, one aspect was really around uh, job of last resort, or notion that it's a job of last resort and it doesn't actually create skills. And here, unsurprisingly, those with the most human capital, I I think one of the findings for uh, graduates with a bachelor degree uh, benefited the least. I mean, that's unsurprising, right? Your marginal improvement for those who are the most well-endowed, almost by definition would be the least, but that is the benefit of what a slightly lower barrier to entry job, or, you know, like uh, platform work offers so those who are older and have fewer other prospects, this is something that they can then do. Those who are younger and have more prospects and don't want to do this for a long time, I think the survey shows that uh, almost half of them actually don't rely on this as their primary means of earnings. So I'd say that this actually is much more of a benefit than not. And the downsides to those who um, can benefit from being elsewhere, uh, if they would, if they could have found earnings elsewhere, they probably might be there as well. So I think to Fiona around, you know, the the notion of status and accreting skills over time, I'd say uh, it seems to be more a benefit of being able to come in than to say that, sorry, not being very clear here. To Fiona, I think, you know, when you talk about a job of last resort, um, the fact that they are here means that other opportunities that they were looking at did not materialize. And obviously the people who would most like to be elsewhere are the ones with the most skills. So then I'd say the opportunity for them to be here as a stopgap is much better than not being anywhere at all. And then lastly to Shamil, um, uh, really around what a day-to-day looks like for a two-wheel delivery driver. I, I, I mean, I've also shadowed, shadowed before and I've, I drive on uh, periodically to understand what the challenges of a four-wheel driver are. Those those challenges are things that the app obviously tries to uh, solve, that we as platforms try to solve, whether it is introducing bar pickup fee, waiting fee, cancellation fee, or any of these other uh, features and measures to mitigate that. But the app can only do so much. Uh, Prof. Danny's opening vignette is very clear that If you think about how the built environment, how the city uh, interacts with aspects of uh, delivery work, Uh, there's a lot of hardware, physical infrastructure that needs to be solved. And maybe just uh, two two closing points. One is we're talking about the drivers here. Um, One thing we haven't talked about is the customer. In Singapore, the typical internet user in the past month has used uh, ride hailing or food delivery services. It's more than one in two. We have one of the highest rates of on-demand service uh, users in the world. Global average is 30%. Um, the US is less than that. So the services provided by platform work is incredibly important to Singapore society, to Singapore consumers. For the 350 um, audience out there, um, how many of you have used Gojek, Grab, Deliveroo, Food Panda in the past one month? So I think one is that it actually is very important. Uh, to us. And particularly post-COVID, it's layered on this issue of the importance of point-to-point transport for safety uh, as as well, notwithstanding how safe and how good and how efficient our public transport is. And then my very last point is around uh, the social perception. I think this was raised a few times, right? One by Fiona and also by Shamil. And here, it is not just an issue with platform work. It is very much a Singapore societal issue. Uh, it's it, it's well noted in Japan that it doesn't matter what sort of work you do, but um, at all levels there is high level of respect within society, even for people doing frontline work, frontline retail work. So that's not so much uh, indictment of platform work, but more around ourselves as a society and something that we should look at the mirror, look in the mirror to uh, be able to address. So looking forward to the conversations and the questions later. Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Lien. Uh, I think uh, Mr. Lien and uh, Prof. Kwa seems to agree on one thing, and I agree with them, absolutely, and that is that we need to think comparative. But at the same time, as moderator, I want you to uh, stay focused on platform workers. Uh, otherwise, we might just say, oh, everybody is the same, right? And therefore, you know, we don't really need to do very much for anybody. Uh, so that that is the danger there. I noticed also that uh, Mr. Lien has posed quite a number of, questions uh, to the team, Matthew and his team, and I hope that at some point they will respond. Uh, maybe after uh, Professor Irene has given her presentation. So Irene, over to you, please.
3: Thanks, Spencer. I'm afraid uh, I might also take a comparative lens. <laughs> but first, I want to thank Matthew and team for the excellent and hard work around this presentation and the subsequent report. It's really comprehensive. Um, I'd like to share four insights two um, from the uh, presentation and two from the inward poverty study, the overall study, and that's where the comparative lens is. So, actually, what I'll share probably reinforces what has been shared by the presenters as well as uh, former pan- panelists. But I think they're worth repeating. Um, I did prepare some slides, so let me share screen. So the first uh, noteworthy uh, insights I found from the presentation is the importance of autonomy, not just flexibility. Um, because autonomy as a concept, right, um, talks about that sense of control, um, ILO defines it as the extent to which workers can exercise discretion in how they perform their work, and this is um, uh, autonomy is a subset of the larger notion of control, where it is workers' ability to actually influence what happens in their work environment. And the former two panellists have talked about how um, platform work compares with other kinds of work. And it strikes me, um, from the presentation, that at least from the perception of platform workers themselves, platform work offers them greater autonomy than their alternative types of jobs. And in the larger um, theoretical model from ILO in the job decision latitude model, they talk about how autonomy and control is important in jobs as they influence worker health and mental health. And so ILO year after year in their surveys will measure this aspect. And and that relates to my second reflection from the findings, which is the alternative jobs. right? And let me share um, two um, cases in in my study. Um, Matthews had actually also offered quite a number of stories, but I I think it's it's worth sharing again. Um, One of the respondents I surveyed in the pilot, right, when he switched from hawker to food tender delivery rider and that was several years ago. When I asked him why he did that, he talked about being a hawker as longer hours, more strain on his health and earning less. He said that he works every day in those, in the former times, every day um, as a delivery rider, he could earn up to $4,000 a month, right? The other person I uh, surveyed, um, when I surveyed him in wave one, he had uh, just, stopped work as a gym instructor because that was during the lockdown, uh, just after the lockdown. And so it's paid by whenever clients needed him. So he couldn't work as that. He was considering becoming a Cisco officer. But by wave two, when I surveyed him, he had become a delivery rider. He just got a um, motorbike. And why? He said he was saving up to get married. And being a Cisco officer, about salary about $2,500 a month, was inferior to working as a delivery rider, where he could just pound the hours like crazy, you know, to to rack up the savings to um, get married, right? And um, earlier, Mister Lian talked about age as a factor, and the presentation talked about that a lot too. But in our study, we surveyed young workers, so um, it's it's really um, reflecting that young workers are in these jobs and what are the decisions around it. And so, being in platform work, I agree with Mr. Lien, which is that it has given them better options in the larger scheme of things. But um, as the presentations have made, um, it's also revealed new vulnerabilities, sacrifices, and opportunity costs. And here, let me share um, two other insights from the larger study, um, which looks at the opportunity costs when we compare platform work with other types of possible employment. Right. Um, so um, this slide shows you the number of hours worked per week among full-time workers in the survey. Um, and we classify according to the Singapore standard occupation categories, um, all except for the group platform riders and drivers. We pluck them out from the larger group called op- um, Operators, machine operators, because they form the large group. And we put the other um, machine operators into elementary jobs. What you see here is how many more hours they work than the rest of the occupations. On average, they work about 50 hours a week. Also, you can see from the range, right? They can work very few hours and a lot, lot more as well, right? So there's flexibility, there's autonomy, but um, they also have to put in a lot more to be able to gain the, the, the same kind of incomes. Right? And um, that, the, another insight from the larger survey is that platform workers more adversely uh, were more adversely affected by COVID 19. Controlled for other factors, they were more likely to be affected by COVID 19, not telecommute. Not, this is not surprising but they're also more likely to work more, earn less, experience employment disruption, and feel discouraged. So of course, COVID-19 is unique, but yet I think for platform workers, it reflects the kind of reality and the kinds of jobs they take up, right? which is their jobs tend to be, um, they tend to experience greater volatility in their jobs, um, whether it's because of external environment or the algorithmic management that we talked about. And and so when we think about um, platform work, um, I think about not just the alternative jobs, but also the counterfactual world that they're in. Um, If these workers were not in platform work, what other work could they have been? Um, This reminds me of my earlier days when I used to do youth outreach. Um, The young people then were also looking for High current earnings that were not very stable income. They would be setting up tents for fairs and you know taking down, um, cleaning up. And when we keep asking, no, "Why don't you want a more stable job?" You know because they gave those uh, jobs give them higher earnings right now, which meets <clears throat> the low income situation much uh, pressingly, right? So um, I agree with um, the. Um, earlier two panellists that we should look at the larger picture. And so in terms of recommendations um, we, to me, it's important to look at the overall labour market, which is that wages and job conditions are poor. So we need to increase wages. Recently, the WIS was announced to be um, extended to thirty down to 30-year-olds. Um, progressive wage model has to happen very quickly. Um, alongside with foreign worker policies to adjust um, so that um, people in lower wage jobs, right, overall will have improved wages. Besides that, also in terms of job conditions, you'll notice from this slide to the previous slide, I have increased the black box, which is the platform-based work. Today, we are focused on riders and drivers. Right, and we focus on companies like Gojek, uh, Grab. But if not for the focus, the spotlight on these companies, there will be other non-standard arrangements, and I think this will increase given that the digital revolution has um offered the opportunity to innovate in terms of how we engage workers. Um, during the industrial revolution, when people were moving from rural farm work to um, assembly line jobs, as uh, Prof Kwa talked about, we came up with employment laws. And now we're facing a different revolution, the digital revolution, where we have to rethink now about employment legislation, how we can also cover the increasing number of platform-based or non-standard work arrangements. So I really agree with the recommendations put up by uh, Matthew's group uh, about uh, uh, REST policy, about CPF, but these things are in the employment legislation. If platform workers can be part of uh, labour laws, then they will be part of CPF. They will have enforced um, REST period. Of course, that takes a while for legislation to change. So meanwhile, I really agree with uh, Prof Kwa too about needing a strong representation by associations that have already been set up in NTUC for riders and uh, drivers. I think that's it for my sharing. Thanks.
0: Okay, thank you very much, Irene. I'm glad that uh, all three speakers seems to be uh, on the same platform, should I say, uh, on the same site. I noticed that you, I mean, by and large, I think your presentation basically reinforced uh, what. Matthews and his team has uh, reported you know in their very comprehensive uh, report uh, and I and it's also right I think to uh, focus to say that uh, really it's not just any jobs any uh, low low paying jobs but also non-standard jobs that we should be focusing on today uh, this morning uh, there's something that I disagree with actually uh, is it really true that platform workers work longer hours than professionals and managers? Uh, I don't really think so honestly, uh, because if uh, managers are working shorter hours or professionals who are working, working shorter hours, then why are we telling their employers not to write uh, email them or whatsapp them you know, uh, after office hours? Obviously something is going on right after office hours. Okay, so that one I'll leave to you to respond later. Uh, I noticed that there are a lot of questions uh, piling up. Uh, some are pretty long. I hope that when you ask your question, please keep it short uh, so that I don't have to try to digest your question before I uh, you know, represent you to ask the, uh, the panel. Uh, okay, maybe uh, we, I'll leave it to uh, Matthews to uh, respond to those questions that were uh, from the panelists uh, before I allow the rest, uh, the other questions to come in. Okay, Thanks, so answer. over to you, Matthew,
4: over to you. <laughs> Thanks, Anson. and I, I'll be very brief in my comments because I, I do think that the, uh, there are many, many very quick questions and the panellists have done a very, very, uh, I think, important job of being able to frame uh, this study. It is very true that we are looking at uh, one particular group, platform workers, and I think taken in isolation, especially in terms of the lived-in conditions, uh, you may not be able to have that comparative uh, lens because Irene's... Uh, I've been using the larger survey to be able to sh- talk about the number of hours I think could be quite informative. Maybe, I mean, you can clarify and argue with the about his talk talk about managers versus uh, platform workers. But I, I think what uh, we need to bear in mind is certainly something that we have uh, looked through and thought through as we did this. It is true. I mean, we are also looking at other kinds of uh, occupational groups and we do know that uh, conditions can be uh, rather tough. In fact, the drivers themselves or the, the riders talk about the conditions, some of, that, some of which kind of push them into uh, platform work. So, obviously, there are issues and needs to kind of work at conditions in many, many different occupational groups. However, I think the big question really has got to do with uh, the amount of protection that's possible. Uh, we do know that I mean if you're a machine operator or you're working in a hotel or a security line or many other jobs which uh, can be quite demanding, there are the kinds of requisite protections which kick in. And uh, I mean of course Irene mentioned the Employment Act just now and of course many of these places there are, particularly because it's a kind of employee employer relationship that kind of forces a certain type of I mean requirement, Uh, legislation, insurance, all kinds of different things. Uh, This seems to be something that might be, uh, or at least, I mean, there's certainly some kinds of insurances and protection already available. And I think a lot of platform companies in Singapore have really kicked in to do that in the last year or so. Uh, However, I think the question is really the adequacy and whether more needs to be done uh, in that front. The second I think has got to do with the fact that in our platform work, I mean, it's true that uh, the alternatives may not always be uh, savory, savoury. The reality is that we do find, uh, uh, especially if you look at a, the younger uh, co- I mean, group of platform workers, they do have decent amounts of education. Uh, many have uh, IT background, polytechnic background, of course, tech graduates inside it. Uh, and of course, the question is that many of the younger uh, folk in this uh, should be l- looking to move into other kinds of work but there's the conditions of platform work, allow them to pivot. Um, I mean, obviously the way that uh, platform work is currently structured is, I mean, arguably for some that it, it uh, treasures loyalty and you stay on in this and you keep on your higher statuses, you get more, you earn more. The, uh, immediacy of the reward in terms of income that comes in is something that's overwhelming for a lot of people. It's something that people, drives people and, and, and keeps them on that. Now, people have agency and they should be able to make that change and decide, well, enough. I mean, I should be now pivoting to my next job. But that's where I guess the, the consideration is. And uh, I mean, is there a responsibility that all uh, platforms uh or, I mean other agencies have in terms of trying to nudge uh, at least some of our younger platform workers to be able to think about the next option. And of course that's about skills future I mean skills training, upgrading, being able to get into useful parts in the labor force uh, or because of the current conditions. I don't use the word comfortable there, but I mean to some extent I think there is a kind of inertia once you're in that, Particular thing, and uh, I mean, there's a certain it, there's a logic of its own that that keeps on, and people kind of uh, sometimes at least a portion of it gets stuck. So I think that call is that there is really that portion that what we're doing to help that portion to be able to say hey, here the other alternatives. Uh, if this is not something that you really enjoy doing, and I mean, there's always things that you should consider, and that's something that everyone has a responsibility of being able to nudge people to towards making that choice. So anyway, I just wanted to bring up that broad point. Uh, I think just as a way of thinking about be perhaps the difference between uh, this and conventional work.
0: Back to you. Okay. Uh, oh yeah, thanks, Matthew. I think for the very uh, detailed uh, response, elaborate response. May I ask the panel speakers whether you want to respond to Matthew, otherwise I'm going to open up to the, uh, to the audience. Anyone, uh, prof-, prof Danny? or Mr. Lian or
2: yeah. Irene. Maybe just a quick one. Uh, you know, one of the comments is that uh, younger workers come onto the platform and even as Dr. Matthews has just said, uh, they they may not feel incentivized to actually leave the platform. I guess the question is, is there a structural lock-in? And thus being on a platform, uh, does a platform work, is it any different from any other work in terms of, uh, preventing you from seeking alternative employment, whether from a mindset perspective. In the early days, it was definitely very attractive because the earnings were high. I think now it's much more rationalized. Um, I would actually argue that it may be easier to seek out alternative work uh, if you're on a platform. Specifically, I know, um, a, you know, I was, I was interviewing for corporate roles, and and the interviewee said, "Oh, you know, I'm glad that we've got Zoom nowadays." Previously, I used to have to take half day leave or take a whole day leave in order to go for an interview. And this is where your flexibility of scheduling actually comes in. But uh, in my previous life, when I used to work as a consultant, and there the hours really were 16, 18 hour days. Um, I, I really had no time to even think about anything else uh, because um, you know I was literally at work all, all the time. So here I would say if there is the wherewithal, there are a lot of opportunities whether with E2I, whether with uh, the availability of flexible learning, with the availability of the job matching platforms out there for the workers to actually, uh, you know, driver partners to go out and seek uh, different kinds of employment. So I don't think that there's a structural lock-in. Mm.
1: Um okay, can, uh, I, can yeah, I just go get ahead, in please, a quick response ahead, as well? Thank you. Sure, sure. Uh, Thank you. Implicit in all this is something that I I don't think any of us has stated in Black and White explicitly, even though all of us are aware of this. When we make reference to the Employment Act and we ask, oh, why, why aren't all these workers simply covered by that? Part of the challenge here that we're grappling with is that platform workers are not employees. They're partners. And they are therefore not covered by the employment act now that then someone might say oh well why don't we extend the law to cover that but you know we're trying to deal with something that uh is quite delicate and and we we and changing laws around is kind of a blunt instrument potentially in this context i mean uh, on policy we're very open to different ways to look at this but for now we're trying to see whether a fine-tuned adjustment that focuses on the specific characteristics of platform workers is something that might be better for everyone, for the sustainability of the industry and for the well-being of the workers themselves. And it's quite important to remember that part of the challenge is that we, we can't use yet a blunt instrument like a law or an act to just to say, okay, this is all taken care of. The work that we're doing here, both IPS and the work that the committee is doing, is precisely to try and get at the special features of the platform workers set against the context, set against the larger context. We are very focused, Prof Tan, on platform workers. We're not ignoring them. But we do need to make sure that this is a level playing field and that no one is disadvantaged in taking Mm -hmm. forward the policies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Back Mm -hmm. to you, please. Thank you.
0: Okay, thanks for your clarification, uh, Prof Kwa. Uh, Irene, do you have any response? Otherwise, I'm going to open to the house.
3: Well, I agree. Uh-oh. I agree with Prof Kwa. And when I mentioned the Employment Act, I'm thinking in the future, we do have to contend with this because the nature of work is really changing. And my studies on young people, and we do see that pe- young people are getting into all kinds of self-employment kind of arrangements. And going forward, they are... At risk, right, in terms of longer term career advancement as well as retirement adequacy. Yeah, but that's why I ended uh, what I was sharing with. Meanwhile, right, we do need that association to represent non standard types of uh, workers. Yeah, thanks.
0: Okay, thanks Irene. Well, I have like six questions uh, lined up here and let me ask the simpler ones and then the, the one or two questions are quite long, so maybe I'll leave it to the end. Okay, the first question is from Alexis Chua uh, and he talks about government intervention. Okay, this is what he said, right? Given the survey data, a lot of them all right, sound like structural issues. Uh, that means what is uh, presented by Matthew and company, right? So, how much of the responsibility falls into the government uh, versus the platform? I suppose employers, like, who, who should uh, take it up, uh, whether it's the government or the employers? I suppose it's both, right? But anyway, uh, uh, you guys can respond and talk about the details if you can. Uh, Prof. Kwa, you want to share? Is it the government's responsibility or is it the, uh, the employers, you know, platform employers?
1: <laughs> Uh, thank, thank you. Thank you, uh, Prof Tan, for that question and for the question itself. I, you know, we, we can't take the view that it's just one party that has to fix everything. The, uh, you know, that's why we need to bring in expertise of you know, the, my, my fellow panelists' insights on thinking through uh, where specifically government might take a certain view on things and where the players themselves, both the platform companies and the platform workers, can take on the agency of trying to fix something. I can say that there are specific issues, for instance, on insurance, specific issues on education and having people understand the long term versus the short term. There's the short term game. I get flexibility and a $4,000 income per month right away. And we need them, we need everyone mm-hmm. to think about how that has to be balanced against the longer term housing and retirement needs. Mm-hmm. We need everyone to get a good sense of the risk and injury prospects as they work in certain kinds of work. Are they correctly assessing these things? You know, mm-hmm. humans are not very good at, 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 at doing these calculations. So we need to try and nudge people to think about these things in a way that's actually good for everyone, good for society. So I don't think it's just one or the other. As, mm-hmm. uh, as, as, as my friend Lian says, you know we should not think about this as an adversarial situation. It is not. Mm-hmm. It is not companies versus workers. <laughs> We're all in it together. We want this industry to be successful, to be sustainable. It's good for other businesses in Singapore. It's good for the Singapore consumer. It's good for the companies and it's good for workers who have no other recourse to things Mm -hmm. that uh, Mm now, in the particular circumstances they find themselves. Mm -hmm. We just need to make sure it works for everyone. And for this, I think we do need everyone to come together to have a mutual understanding. It's very Mm -hmm. important that we have conversations like this and the consultations that we're we're constantly doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm happy to fill in more details, (laughs) but let me leave it at that. Okay, (laughs)
0: absolutely. I think for a long time, you know, in Singapore, we have practiced this thing called tripartism, right? Uh, Where government, employers and unions, uh, you know, get get involved in the discussion and hopefully come up with something that is good for everybody, you know. Uh, It's not a zero-sum game. It can be a positive sum game. I think Irene, you wanted to say something, right? I'd
3: like to add to Prof Kwa. I really agree with what he said. I think that the other way that government and uh, the platforms can work together is also about how the government provides the infrastructural regulatory framework for innovations in how platforms engage with workers. Um, so And, and then I, I really like what Mr. Lien also talked about how um, it is in the company's self-interest to look after the workers. And I hope um, more companies take from that perspective um, because companies do tend to just look at profit margins or uh, not just tend to look at profit margins and efficiency and in that way would compromise on uh, uh, worker well-being. Mm, one okay. yeah. thing to is double,
2: it... yeah, you know, ahead, add on ahead, to that, that, right, which is um, if, you, if you think about the coverage or the protections that comp- the platforms provide for the workers, I mean in Gojek we've got something called Go Better, which is pretty comprehensive, you know, it includes Prolonged medical leave, personal accidents, um, hospitalization—you know, up to eighty-four days. Uh, so, and and I'm not I'm not alone in this, right? Whether it is Grab, whether it's uh, Comfort rufu uh, Panda—you know—they they all have different types of arrangements. Whether a doctor anywhere for ourselves, we do it with a giggle cover. So, we, as I said, when when we entered the industry in Singapore, it was relatively mature where the realization that we need to work well with the drivers, make sure it's sustainable for them, is quite uh, deeply embedded within the psyche. So there are a lot of uh, protections that are offered uh, from insurance, from a downside risk. If we take a step back and say, look, there are three main concerns here. One is around earnings. The second is around downside protection risk. And then really the third one is um, what are long-term future prospects. I think that's Irene's, that's the, that's the point of interest that Irene, Irene has. And I see at least from the downside protection, I mean, we can definitely tweak it more, but almost every platform in some way, shape or form, clearly I'm, I think that we do uh, some of the features or the quantum we provide are industry leading. Uh, but I would say the industry generally is quite responsible about this. And uh, we can look at, and people will always ask for more. We need to see what is more, particularly in the context that, um, on platform work, the relationship of work is, is very um, is very flexible. I mean, that is the defining feature. It is not 40 hours of work per week. And then you draw a platform and say uh, you draw a, a line, a quantized line, and say 40 hours a week, and hence you get this bucket of benefits. So everyone has got tiered benefits. We, you know, we do as well, but I think we offer very uh, generous ones. The industry overall. Offers very generous ones. It is just about uh, allocating the tiering of time to the tiering of, of benefits and particularly the ones for the for the segments that are most vulnerable. I think uh, two wheel drivers in particular, probably a little bit more than four wheel drivers if you look at things like accident rates. Um, and one, one additional thing to, to talk about though, uh, there was a, one of the strong recommendations is on rest and mandatory rest. And the challenge here is that you can be resting on, on a platform, my platform, but you will not be resting on another person's platform. So there is a lot of personal agency. Uh, drivers obviously do take their breaks. They are educated to take breaks. We recommend them to take breaks, they are reminders. But ultimately, if uh, there's only that much that one can do, precisely because there is options and there are choice. So I can go do something else when I'm on break on platform one. So I think it is important to know that as well. Again, before we try to legislate or oh, mandatory breaks every four hours, fifteen minutes, um, <coughs> uh, uh, people people can 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 vote with their feet. Drivers can vote mm-hmm. with their feet.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Mister Lien. Okay, I have a question here. Uh, as I said, I'm going to read only the short question for now. Right? Uh, it's from Aileen Wong, good friend of mine, and her question is more for Matthews, I think. And she said, I understand that the NTUC has been considering what could be done for platform workers. Uh, Has the research team touched base with them and see what they might be considering and thereby respond to their recommendations with the data findings? Uh, Matthew, I think this is for you. Have you uh, consulted or talked to the uh, NTUC folks?
4: Yeah, we've been on a attempt to try to consult in different groups. And of course, right from the start, we were interested in looking at the associations and their uh, relationship with drivers and, and riders. So we have done that. And I think that's part of something that we're trying to do ongoing, to be able to to share some information, data, insights, and collaboratively work with uh, these, these associations. So I think I'll just leave that as that, yeah. So current attempts to look at it, it's still in the early stage, but we are trying to, to share and get some uh, information to these uh, different stakeholders.
0: Okay, thanks, Matthew. Okay, the next question I have here is from, uh, I'm not sure whether Mr. Song or Ms. Song, right? And uh, the question is about this disability concern, right? Here it goes. The platform companies say that they give meaningful meaningful jobs to people with physical disabilities. Has the team interviewed any riders uh, with physical disabilities Uh, for them? Do their responses differ, differ? Given that they typically face uh, higher barriers in traditional types of work. Uh, okay, back to you again, Matthews. Did you talk to any uh, one with physical uh, disabilities?
4: I think I think at this point we were not looking at physical disability as the the main area of uh, I mean that. So I think <laughs> we've not done that.
0: Okay, uh, Mister
2: Leon, do you want to say something? Yeah. Um... This is a little bit more of an anecdote. Um, uh, you know, Many years ago, uh, well, not many years ago, but more recently, uh, my team actually met up with a driver who unfortunately due to an accident he had many years ago, uh, lost one of his legs, but that still allows him to drive in such a small world that uh, this driver actually was somebody that I was colleagues with uh, when I was in the military. And you're saying that driving is uh, actually one of the best uh, work available that he can find, given the uh, impairment that, that he has. So as long as one can drive and uh, you know, there are, we, we can work around some of these limits, uh, it's actually um, uh, a type of work that allows them to earn a pretty good income. So whether it is hearing disabilities uh, or some aspect of physical disabilities, the, um, the platform actually is quite uh, flexible in that regard. So we do actually make a lot of allowances as long as it's something that doesn't prevent them from discharging their duties safely.
0: Okay, thanks Mr. Lian. Okay, the next question I have is from uh, Chong Yankie about uh, labor market, right? His question goes like this. While salaries of low wage jobs have increased over the years, you know, for example, the progressive work uh, 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 that we came into being, right? Um, Wages have remained low. How important is this low wage labour market context in Singapore in shaping the choices and actions of platform workers? Uh, What does this mean for labour market policies for low wage workers? Okay, kind of a broad question, right? Maybe Irene, do you want to say something?
3: (laughs) I feel like I've shared about that in my sharing, which is, I do think that the larger context is bad wages and bad jobs overall among lower educated people. And so that has to improve for sure. Um, mm. If wages, alternative, uh, wages of alternative jobs improve, then the going into platform won't be that much attractive. You know, it levels the playing field in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps uh, the, the other panelists would like to add. Please.
0: Yeah, uh, Prof. Danny I think you are moving right.
1: <laughs> um. Mm. Uh, the uh, uh, you know just what Irene said I think is is a very sensible approach and you know we have we have lots of uh uh sort of concerted thinking about the wage structures in Singapore and I think we've got the we've got a good handle on that but what Irene said is the the right approach I think. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I wonder whether should we bring out the you know the the question of whether should every worker has a at least a living wage. Uh, I know we don't want to talk about minimum wage, right, what about living wage, you know, <laughs> so food for thought. Yeah, okay, let me move on to uh, the next question, right, this is from Nuru Huda Hassan uh, about intervention for lower income platform workers, okay. In order to provide income security particularly for lower income platform workers, who seem to occupy such a significant proportion in this industry, uh, where do you think would be the most effective point of intervention in the ecosystem? Government, consumers, platform companies. All right, here we're talking about uh, providing income security. I hope the question not too vague, right? where do you think would be the most effective point of intervention in the ecosystem? I mean, should it be the government, the consumer, or platform companies?
2: Okay, Maybe, the, maybe I, I'd like to-
0: Yeah, go, to go ahead. please, okay. Oh, I wanted to say that, you know, maybe consumer comes in in the sense that they must be willing to pay more, and whether they're willing to do that or not, you know? It's one thing to say, okay, you know, everybody increase wages, right? Uh, but are consumers willing to pay for
2: part the at that is? Yeah, Mr. Lin. Yeah. No, ex- exactly. If you go back to the concerns that we've raised, right? One, earnings, two, savings, three, risk, four, uh, future sort of future growth. From an earnings perspective, ultimately it has to be the consumer, it has to be the market. And if the business model is not something that the market finds valuable, then clearly uh, 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 you know then it's not sustainable. And that's why I cited that um if you look at private car ownership in the U.S., ride hailing is actually very low in the U.S. It's one of the lowest in this survey because the U.S. cars are cheap, right? So if you still believe that point-to-point is important, particularly with the, um, with the car-like model that Singapore is adopting, then, then whether it's point-to-point or on-demand services, the customers find it critical and important in a density like Singapore, where there are great efficiencies to be had for this type of transport, then the customers have to pay. But for the other things, it may be done by other people. So if you talk about savings, savings, you can legislate it, or you can mandate it, or you can educate the uh, drivers a little bit more. Uh, insurance, uh, insurance, you know, Prof Danny talked about the challenges of attributing risk um, if I'm on a trip versus I'm not. So there's probably some notion of pooling there, which is what insurance is about. and then you just spread it equally rather than trying to tie it directly to one person or one platform or one driver. And the last about mobility, I think mobility is really where I feel, again, uh, public sector uh, plus education, because we also have worked very closely with uh, uh, WSG um, you know, to help our drivers reskill and reprofile. NTUC does a lot of very good work uh, in trying to help drivers reskill and reprofile. So, I'd say the four desiderata that we are keen on having for the driver partners, um, they would be managed or they would be supported by different parts of the ecosystem.
0: So, uh, Mr. Lee, they are talking, uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, uh, Okay, maybe Prof go ahead first.
1: <laughs> okay, thank you. I, 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 uh, this, this question about wages is obviously a very important one, and it touches on a whole set of other issues. But I also don't want us to forget that um, it, jobs matter. Industries that create jobs are things that, you know, modern societies everywhere in the world are worried about and greatly value. Having a job imparts a sense of dignity and purpose to those who are employed in this way. And the same time that we think about how the entire ecosystem of industry players, platform companies, government regulations, the consumer all come together to help determine the wages of platform workers, we can't lose sight that this remains a growth area for 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 industry for for the workforce across the world and this growth area needs to be something that's nurtured it brings wonderful benefits to the consumer because we you know through the covid-19 circuit breaker what most of us were able to do when we were sort of confined to our domicile was that we ordered in we travel point to point we ordered in we drew hugely on the platform industry And this will be something that continues to shape the world post-COVID as we discover new ways of working. So I think, yes, we should look at wages, but we should always keep in mind that the ecosystem that is sustainable, that continues to create jobs, is hugely important. We need to work together to continue to sustain that. So back Mm -hmm. to you, please, Prof Mm -hmm. Tan.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, of course, when we think of the economy, right? I mean, at the end of the, at the end of the day, right? Economy is about the people, right? I mean, we and creating jobs is actually a form of welfare, uh, at least for the a neoliberal kind of perspective, right? But I think it's very true, uh, and and therefore the government needs to come in because, uh, you know, uh, the market doesn't always uh do a good job. Okay.
3: Okay. okay. Let me book.
0: Move- yeah, go ahead. Go
3: ahead. To it, yeah. Um, on your point, I think that the government coming in to provide the regulatory framework in which companies operate is very important. Um, it's a very challenging job because you know, innovations come, and you know, it, it, and policy has to keep chasing those. But it's very important because when uh, we don't keep up, who are the ones who are left out? Who are left behind? It is those at the bottom of the
0: chain, which are the, mm. right now mm. we're
3: talking about platform workers. Mm-hmm.
0: So, mm-hmm. so that mm. regulatory yep. role of the government is very, very key to keep yep. up. Yep. yep, Certainly, certainly. Okay, let me move on to the next question. This is from uh, Francis Yeo on the viability of the industry, right? Uh, given that Grab and Gojek and other ride-hailing uh, businesses are continuing to lose money, I'm not sure whether it's true or not. Uh, while earnings for platform workers are not exactly great, is this model
2: viable in the long term? Maybe, maybe let me take that right. Um, yeah, go, ahead, go ahead directly. If you if you look at the bellwether, the leader for this, you know, Uber actually uh, presented uh, EBITDA adjusted uh, positive returns last year. They are a listed company, so I think in the long run, and obviously, uh, they they have to. Uh, business streams, which is both uh, ride-hailing as well as food delivery. So if you look at some of the slightly longer-term leaders, uh, they are actually viable. So in the long term, I think the answer, answer would be yes. In the short term, obviously, there is uh, uh, there is market growth, market acquisition, and companies will do what they need to in order to adjust either you know uh, driving more customer acquisition or providing more for, for drivers. As an example, Gojek, we, the industry standard is to take twenty percent commission from it. So every ten dollars that you're charged, uh, as a customer, two dollars goes to the platform, Gojek, um, and eight dollars goes to the driver, more, more or less, right? Subject to some other sort of the details of fees. But uh, Gojek actually takes only a dollar, and the driver will get will, will get nine dollars. Uh, we only take, uh, you know, 10 percent commission. So at any point in time, at least in the early stages, the company would be either, you know, trying to provide more for drivers or trying to provide vouchers. Um, I'm sure people have seen the nine to five, many you know many many passengers have seen the nine to five vouchers that we've been putting out. But in the long run, it is a critical essential uh, transport infrastructure service uh, on, on ride hailing, as well as food delivery that like Profqua obviously sounds like he, he likes to get a <laughs> It's not just a home cooking that, that he enjoys. And, and that will be part of the landscape that we live with uh, going forward. right? Yeah, and yeah. if it is important, if it is pervasive, then there will be um, economic profit to be made. And it would be sustainable that you can flow through the full value chain down to the driver partners as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we should think certainly think in terms of a win-win kind of situation, right? you know, like you say earlier, right? It's not adversarial. Uh, everyone can gain. You know, industries can create jobs, and uh, hopefully, we hope that those jobs will be uh, decent-paying and uh, provide good condition. Okay, I have two more questions before we wrap up. Okay, so let me uh finish that. Okay, this one is from Gerard uh, McKetty on car leasing. How does car leasing affect the financial health of the drivers uh, given that it eats into their earnings? Okay, looks
2: like Mister the again. Uh. Uh, this is an interesting question, right? I think, uh, and it's only, it's not only, but it's the most pertinent in Singapore. I think we know that the COE prices now, you know, we're hovering around 80K. So it, it is it is very high. And if you think about um, the supply of, of drivers the, the instruments their their tool of trade of is actually going to be the car car plus petrol and we've also known that petrol prices have have increased as well so um, you know we, we meaning at least gojek we don't actually own cars right uh, but the 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 rise in uh, car rental or in coes will indirectly flow through to um car uh, car rental rates and i mean i think there's there's no way around that. And part of that it goes back to the question of earnings and cost, and how do we um how do we then be able to pass through some of these to the end consumer as well? I think will be uh, the the critical question.
0: Okay, thank you.
2: Okay, let me ask. I know there are more questions coming
0: in, but time is running out. So let me just ask one. Uh, the last question. Okay, this is from uh, Terence, right? I'm sure you all know Terence. Uh, would it be useful to develop career guidance for uh, platform workers to deep their... I can you see this. So, not, something is hidden, right? Uh, to deep their something, something, something. alternative forms of employment. I think it's basically about training, like training and career, career guidance. You know, uh, Is it something that uh, Gojek is doing or any of our platform, companies?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we, we talked about uh, reprofiling and retraining. First, the, the the government has put in a lot of effort. I mean, if you think about the broader narrative of education, it's no longer, you know, if you think of uh, higher education, it is no longer you leave school and that's it. You're, you're set for the rest of your life. There's so much around bite-sized learning. There are so many startups out there. There are so many online learning platforms. So one, the availability of an opportunity to reprofile is, is more than it ever was, right? The second is, is there awareness of the need to reprofile? And I think I really like the, um, I think it's the NTUC line, which is, we are here to protect um, the workers, not the jobs. So there's no job that is sacrosanct. Uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I believe in that. I mean, Singapore needs to believe in that because mm-hmm. having a dynamic workforce that can then adapt to growing needs. Of course, reprofiling is challenging, it's difficult, it's disruptive, we all appreciate and understand that. I think the public sector, the government, has made a lot of efforts to be able to help workers reprofile. So, second, uh, you know, and with with grants and and all, and similarly, like I said, we work with we, we've had programs with WSG to help uh, driver partners uh, reprofile themselves if they want to look for work outside of uh, outside of uh, of driving, and then you also have opportunities such as E2I. So it is not for lack of availability, it is not for lack of awareness um, that that uh, people don't do this, right? Then the question is, what are some of the other structural issues? I mean, is it really that within the, within the availability set of what is out there, in terms of the full benefits, you know, when you take across, I want flexibility, I want, you know, the ability to, I mean, again, anecdotally, speak to drivers and they say, Look, you know, I've got an elderly parent I need to care for at home, and I just really like to be able to hit back at, at any sort of hours. Um, uh, people have voted with the choices that they have available, and I think the upstream parts of, of, uh, of, of making this as, as available as possible have, uh, I won't say, I mean, again, more can always be done. But what is the state that we are starting off from? I think it's actually a pretty good start point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I suppose Can the. I uh, to that? Sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Irene. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Um, so, the inward poverty study, when we started up, we were concerned about this area why why, do mm. why young people make certain decisions in their jobs and to what extent do they access the uh, existing um, opportunities, for example, E2I, and, WSG and skills future, you know, because we are finding that young people don't seem to engage as much uh, with these um, government standard kind of uh, programs, especially the lower educated. Yeah. Um, and in fact, in, in our study now, the among the pool of platform workers, 86% are IT graduates and below. And we're finding that between the IT graduates and those who didn't graduate from IT, they are actually in very similar jobs. So somehow the IT graduates are still doing platform or other kinds of work like this. So what's happening that they're not pursuing those careers that they are trained for in the ITE. So I support what uh, Matthew's team um, have recommended in this area which is to provide more targeted and customized kind of career guidance for this group, right not just platform workers but younger workers we are concerned about in terms of their future trajectories. And I find that actually Mr. Lian, um, companies like yours will have a very good role because somehow young people, maybe they have some resistance when it's government, right? But that the fact that they are your partners, right? And you reach out to them and say, hey, we are hiring you, but yet think about your future, you know, what are the options? And I think it might be more effective than the current state.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, actually, that to me sounds like a corporate social responsibility
2: to your partners. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like, and that is the point I was making. We do have programs like these where we actively, you know, try to encourage uh, drivers, private partners that want to take up other, other work and other job to 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 reskill, upskill, reprofile themselves. So, yeah. I mean, there, there is a lot of, uh, and it's not just this, right? I mean, if you take a step back. Around awareness education, I think one of the calls for was for being understanding what this is about. One of the uh, campaigns that we've run is really around um, savings, um, how they manage a budget. There's a lot around financial literacy, and that is also a campaign and a program that we've uh, that that we do run. In fact, again, mm-hmm. you know, in as an example of how not many people have, may have gone through or hold a PDVL here, but if you actually go through the course. Uh, the two-day uh, PDVL course. One of the modules is around how do you plan your finances? How do you plan your budget? Essentially, if you think of yourself as a as an SME or if you're self-employed, I mean, you are responsible for your for your PNL. Uh, that is, mm-hmm. I, I was surprised. I mean, I was very pleasantly surprised when I took the class, and and they actually were trying to get the drivers to really think about it from that perspective. So, I my my point is, this is uh, hammered home. Through many different channels at many different times already, mm-hmm. and uh, if you're saying you know, can ITs do more to channel and steer their students to other other, other sorts of work? I, I mean, very very possibly, right? But I don't think that there's a disproportionate disproportionate sway or disproportionate pull of this uh, industry of uh, right hailing or platform work on some of the younger uh, younger uh, younger workers. Um, uh, beyond the merits, the, the surface merits of what is available. Mm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, we have actually about 10 minutes more to go. Uh, so we have time for one question, uh, one more question. Well, I think to respond to to what uh, Mr. Lian has said, right, it's also that they, I think the new, the buzzwords, as we all know now, right, is that we have to stay employable. Right. It's not about sticking around with one employer, but to stay employable. And that means we have to uh, reinvent ourselves all the time, upskill, reskill, whatever, you know. Uh, and, and the responsibility is not just to uh, go jack or grab or any of this company, right, but also to the individuals. Uh, and and of course, you know that the government provides the opportunity and the funding as well. So let me ask the last question and then after that I'm going to ask the panel speakers to uh, give their parting shots and then we're done for today. Okay, the the question I have here, okay, this is from Beatrice, right? It says, uh, for consumers to be willing and able to afford to pay more, their wages need to be able to support the prices they pay for these services and products. Uh, the system is circular. It is about jobs. It's about distribution of income. What is a fair distribution? Who determines what is fair? Okay, this one goes beyond Gojack, right? And I think maybe <laughs> uh, we can start with Prof Qua, Then uh, I think Irene will be able to answer that, I think. Uh, of course, Mr Lin can join too.
1: Thank you for that question. Uh, exactly as Prof Tan says, this, that question extends well beyond the the very important focus that we've got today, I think you know the the question that's asked is what is a fair you know system that continues to keep generating uh, well being for the people for society and that's sustainable. I think that you know one thing we need to do is to be uh, properly we need to properly manage our ambitions. Uh, we've got we've gotten to a point where prosperity, well-being is, is within reach of everyone. We continue to lift people from fr- the world continues to lift people from poverty. Uh, we, we continue to make everyone better off. But what is really critical, it seems to me, a magic bullet is not to to obsess overly on whether other people have more, this group has less, but to continue to make opportunities available. No segment of society should feel that there are parts of the landscape that are forever shut to them. Everybody should feel they can continue to progress upwards. And I think in this work, we apply that idea in this work, you know, there are low barriers to entry in a work that, that individuals, workers see training, see lessons about how to manage their finances, see constantly opportunities afforded to them. They have to balance that against the amount of time they spend working. All of this makes for a delicate balance. uh, We need to to allow society to come to a point where it sees the way forwards for itself. We can't have overly heavy handed an approach from government or anybody else that dictates the way forwards. We've got an ecosystem that's got to work together. But the critical thing is everyone must continue to have hope for the future. Everyone must be able to see a path upwards for themselves. And I think we are building that. We're building that with the kinds of industries that the platform companies are building. We're building that with the kinds of Infrastructure that government want needs to put in place, and we're building that with the kinds of human capital improvement that we're providing our workers here. So, so the platform worker uh, our question is a microcosm of larger challenges. But I think we we understand the forces that I work, and we continue to advance and and make things better for everyone. Back to you, Prof. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely, I think I'm very inspired by what you said, <laughs> with a lot of passion. Okay, uh. Maybe we'll just have take the uh, parting shots, right, from every uh from everyone. Let's start off with uh, uh Matthew first, and then Mister Lien, and then uh Irene, and then I'll let Prof Danny have the last word. Okay, uh, Matthew's parting shots.
4: Thank, thanks very much, uh, Prof Dan, and, and certainly appreciate all the comments that have uh, been given today. Uh, I mean, I, I won't give so much a summary of my discussion. I'll, I'll leave the. Uh, the rest of the panelists to, to discuss that. But I want to mention that a lot of the ideas that people have shared and a lot of participants have put on the Q&A function, uh, these are ideas that we self- definitely want to think through and uh, uh, we are working on putting a book together. and We want to be as comprehensive as possible, putting in all the different uh, views, opinions, different stakeholders. So many of these ideas are extremely important for that broader uh, issue that we're looking at. I think the, there are quite a few big questions that come out in this discussion. Uh, one, of course, is the whole notion about uh, I mean platform work versus other kinds of, of work and uh, whether platform work itself can be a sustainable type of career. i noticed quite a few questions which which ask about uh, platform work as a long-term career. Should we really just stream down? Uh, platform work as something that people do to complement their incomes and uh, to, I mean, to do it on the side, but have other kinds of jobs which are their main employment, uh, you know, of course, some people argue that that's a free-riding type of situation, but, but nonetheless, the idea that, you know, you've got, you've got uh, platform work which may not be able to provide the kinds of protection, but everybody gets em- formal employment or, or, or the kind of Full time employment, which allows them the kinds of protection and all that, I think that's, I mean, that that bigger question about uh, where platform work should reside within the broader issue about work is something that I think they're still kind of thinking about, uh, trying to make more sense about, uh, especially when it comes to the whole issue about agency. Um, do I mean, should we come to a situation where, at least from what we see from our respondents? whether it comes to issues to do with CPF or savings or uh, when when people are given choices to make in terms of whether they should look after some of their longer-term interests, are people generally responsible enough to do that? Uh, Or or is there a proportion within that bigger population really, for some reason, maybe because of lack of information or perhaps are not very familiar with the dynamics of things, uh, may not... uh, Use that agency to appropriately make choices, which would serve the longer term interests. And so, I think we are still at a quandary about how much of this should be something that perhaps legislation should take care of and kind of ensure. So, for instance, uh, there should be a decent level of protection, uh, which is not just subject of uh, individuals buying that higher level of protection, but everybody is accorded that they have to pay. For that protection, if they want to get into a ride-hailing or in a delivery riding kind of thing, and these are set by uh, the government through policy, so we're still looking at that, thinking carefully how much of agency and how much should people be left to make that decision, or whether many of these things should be something that is, uh, you know, I mean, pushed by policy. So that's some of the rumination mm. that we have, and we are very happy to get a lot more input and insights on this in the the weeks and months to come.
0: Thanks, that's Matthew. Yeah, okay,
2: Mister Lin, parting shots for you. Uh, maybe just to you know re- reiterate a few points. I think the first is that uh, when you talk about you know some of the questions around distribution and sustainability, we all want this to be sustainable, and I, I said that. And really, sustainable means that it is some sustainable across the, you know, the the whole industry, the whole ecosystem, and that means that. Uh, uh, you know, A lot of this focus on the, on, on the driver partner, which is, which is critical, right? But then there's obviously the platform view, the needs of the, the, the government regulators and, and the customers. Everyone in that system, actually, their viewpoints are important as well. Um, the challenge is that these, this is sustainable in many other industries. What is different here and what is different now is uh, obviously the flexibility afforded by platform work. So the second point is, I think uh, the study talked about the heterogeneity. I think it is very, very important to acknowledge that and to have good color around, um, around the uh, different needs that platform work now affords as compared to a previous one employer steady work model, right? We've always had contract work in the past. I think one of the comments was really talk, uh, in the Q&A spoke about the, the contract worker model and I mean, that is not fundamentally, or that is the earlier generation of platform work, if you will. So some deeper color or deep dive on the people who really do benefit from platform work. And for the ones who do treat uh, platform work as, say, their full-time employment, what does a higher tier or higher step of support and protection for them look like? So I think the second point is that you know, platform work uh, really does have to be looked at in slightly more granular detail. And then the third is the comparison of platform work with its alternatives, and really it is the framing of the opportunity cost, uh, framing of um, what else you could be doing out there uh, if if this opportunity were not available. If suddenly you know tomorrow all the platforms were not available, no Gojek, no 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 Grab, no Deliveroo, no Food Panda, would we as a society, including the drivers, driver partners, be better off? or worse, worse, worse off for it, right? So I think uh, really it is, uh, you know, just what are you comparing uh, platforms and platform work against and what has it actually unlocked? I, I think this was really very well articulated. Prof. So these are probably the three main things, you know, I, I would want to talk about, right? Which is the relativity, the overall benefit to society and the fact that all the stakeholders really uh, must be able to uh, have something that feeds their needs as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, Irene?
3: I'm going to start sounding like a broken record. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) so for platform workers, I think the recommendations in this presentation and also the Committee on Platform Workers really have to be addressed um, urgently. And as they are being addressed, I think they'll move them closer and closer to more regular employees, and maybe at that point, it'd be natural to extend the Employment Act to them or modify the labor laws accordingly. And um, in terms of then roles between um, asking companies like Gojek to be moving on this or the government, um, I think both has, has to happen. But at the same time, in my other research, not on uh, platform companies and workers, um, employers tend to say that you know, because of competition, we want to pay better wages, we want to offer better conditions, but we can't because there'll be another company that will undercut us. So government policy is important to move. And those employers tell me that when the government implemented mandatory wage levels, that's when all companies aligned. Yeah, um, And so the larger context of um, overall wages and conditions um, that we have to look out for And um, also the ecosystem, um, that reminds me of what Shamil actually mentioned once in our earlier sharing on their findings. Tip the riders and drivers, you know, now that we know how precarious their work is, you know, tip them. Thanks. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, yeah. Prof? Uh, Thank you.
1: Uh, Thank you, Prof Tan. This has been such a wonderful discussion and such a beautiful study that Matthew Matthews and the IPS team have put together. It's going to give lots more uh, material for discussion going forwards. So maybe to end, I can, while looking at that, zoom out a bit and conclude with three principal thoughts. Uh, First is that we can't fight technology and competition, the global marketplace. These are things that are happening everywhere and we can't fight them. My second thought is we should be Tai Chi in our martial arts approach to this. We need to use the great strengths of technology and the marketplace and leverage that into a window of opportunity. For my third point, which is how we protect our people while learning more to do better, learning to do better on managing this digital revolution. And I think this study helps us think about all of those issues in a larger context. Thank you very much, Matthew and team, and thank you, Prof Tan.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, well said, uh, Prof Tanikwa. Okay, so it leaves for me to, uh, to thank the panel speakers. I think we have a very enlightening, insightful uh, session. Uh, I hope that this conversation will continue in whatever other forms. And I'm sure those questions, and also my apologies to those uh, questions I did not uh, raise for this uh, panel because of shortage of time. Uh, but I'm sure you can still write to Matthew, right, if he's open to it. <laughs> okay, so thank you very much. And uh, thank you, everybody, for staying with us, your active participation. And uh, maybe my parting shots personally will be, may we do right for our platform workers. Uh, and of course, all other workers who are in non-standard occupation. Thank you very much.